Hello, and welcome back to Based on What. Uh, this is Calvin recording after the fact. This summer, Matt and I had the great opportunity to go up north. We took a road trip to West Point, New York, and we stayed with a friend of my mother's at the U.S. Military Academy. And while we were there, we got to tour the school and do some other things. But we also had the opportunity to interview someone for our podcast who is a very special guest. So without further ado, uh, let's get right into that interview. Could you just introduce yourself real quick to people who don't know you? Yeah, of course. Mr. My Mr. Name is Dr. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Dr. Ray Kimball. Um, I am uh, the founder and chief executive officer of 42 Educational Games Coaching and Design. Uh, we are a tiny little firm that focuses on supporting higher ed faculty with uh, understanding and implementing game-based learning. Uh, before I started my company, I was a 26-year veteran of the United States Army, including service on the faculty at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And can you just uh, go through real quick some of your experiences um, in the military and uh, with history? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the military, I had three kind of broad uh, job descriptions. Uh, I started out as an Army aviator, as a helicopter pilot. Uh, and so I've just fulfilled uh, one of the oldest jokes about pilots, which is, how do you know when a pilot walks in the room? And the response is, don't worry, uh, they will tell you. So I served as a helicopter pilot for 12 years. I was a line pilot and a maintenance test pilot. Uh, I then moved into uh, what we call our strategist functional area, which basically deals with uh, national and theater level policy and did some strategist jobs uh, both in the White House and in Afghanistan, uh, and then finished out my time as an academy professor uh, primarily on the, the dean staff uh, at West Point, both running a research center focused on leader development and then serving as the chief of faculty development. Uh, and during my, my time at West Point, I spent a total of 10 years at West Point uh, over two tours, uh, and I had the privilege as part of that because we are a teaching institution uh, of teaching in the Department of History. I primarily taught uh, the freshman Russian history survey course, although I also taught some courses in Western Civ, world history, and history of gender and sexuality. And what do you think is it that makes history so important, especially for young people? What's your favorite thing about history? So my favorite thing about history is actually how, how important it is and how applicable it is to all different facets of life. Uh, the former head of the history department uh, at West Point, Brigadier General Ty Sedgley, I think summed it up really, really well, which is that he said, history is too important to be boring. Um, and, and I really firmly believe that because unfortunately, in many respects, the way history is taught in a lot of classrooms is spectacularly boring, right? It's names, it's dates, it's faces. And you're like, oh, my Lord, why, why are you bombarding me with this? What's really important to me and what's really fascinating to me about history is narrative and story and getting people to understand how things happened and how it all fits in in kind of one long tapestry, looking for recurring things that happen over time. You know, Mark Twain famously said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you can see a lot of that in, in historical patterns of behavior. Uh, over time. So I think the thing that is really important about history is getting people to understand historical method, how historians evaluate the past, how they tell the story of the past, and then helping people use that story of the past to ask the right questions about the present. Because history can't predict the present. History doesn't have 
answers for the present, but history can help us ask the right questions about the present uh, and help us to think about what may happen based on our actions in the present. You were in the military and then you were a teacher. How did you get into uh, gaming and how did you get into uh, game design and designing the games that you've made? Absolutely. Yeah. So I will tell you that my, uh, my, my, my history in game-based learning actually began just with my own gaming. Uh, I was uh, a gamer uh, by craft. I did tabletop role-playing games uh, when I was a teenager and in college, primarily Dungeons & Dragons, but I also did uh, the Paranoia role-playing game, if there's any kind of old-school tabletop folks out there. Um, and, uh, and then extended that into digital games as digital games became more prevalent. Um, and I really uh, and I really believe in the power of games to help immerse people. And so when I started teaching in 2005, it was just kind of a natural extension for me to extend that idea of game-based learning into my classroom. And it started very small with just kind of simple, basic uh, kind of role-playing stuff. So, for instance, when I was teaching about Greek philosophy, uh, I ran a, a, a little miniature simulation where folks had to role play different Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, um, but also the Stoics, also the Epicureans, and they had to pitch me uh, on using their particular form of philosophy to educate my son. Um, so, you know, so what did that do for my students? Well, one, it gave them kind of a framework for this stuff, right? They weren't just learning about these philosophies and books. They actually had to apply them as part of an argument, which really makes it come alive. And it also just brought in that element of competition and, you know, healthy competition couched in a healthy way. Um, can really help excite people and can really help engage people. You know, certainly you can take competition to an unhealthy level, and I think all of us have probably seen that at some point or another in our lives. But but a healthy level of competition is really really powerful and meaningful in terms of classroom instruction. Uh, and so I did small simulations like that, and and as I saw the power of that game-based learning my ambition kind of grew and I started to do some more. And so I wrote a small simulation uh, on, on uh, the Reformation and choosing uh, what religion a particular German township was, go a principality rather, uh, was going to take. And then adapted that to the, uh, the Russian imperial court uh, post Catherine the Great. Um, the game that I've written that I'm most proud of uh, is a collaborative effort with Dr. Kimberly Redding uh, of Carroll University called Eyeball to Eyeball the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is basically an opportunity to role play the Cuban Missile Crisis from one of multiple factions, the U.S. faction, um, the Soviet faction, obviously, but you can also role play within the Cuban faction, within a media faction, or within an international faction, which is this larger group of kind of international actors who are on the sidelines watching this. So what, what the game really does is it takes you out of this binary idea of the Cold War of just U.S. versus Soviets and really makes you think more about all of the different actors uh, that were involved in this crisis and how this crisis played out over time. I was just sort of curious um, about like how the students, uh, what your students think of all this and like if they, I imagine if I had a teacher like you, I would be um, pretty happy because it sounds like an interesting class. Um, but I'm just sort of curious about like the students how, what, if you uh, have noticed any changes in students after you started um, using games and whatnot to teach your classes? Yeah, so I mean, the, so one easy way to measure this is in the student evaluations, right? And in what students say 
uh, about this. And consistently, year over year, semester over semester, um, the feedback that I got from my students is that the games and simulations that I do uh, are by far their favorite part of the class session. I mean, it's it, nothing else is even close. And that's and 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 it's not just because it's fun and enjoyable, but they also felt that it genuinely helped them to understand the principles that we were talking about. It genuinely helped them to understand the motivations of historical actors, the stresses that they were under, the decisions they had to make. Uh, and that's not just my students. You know, uh, Kimberly and I have had the pleasure of having our game played in uh, seven or eight different institutions now. And the feedback that I consistently get from all of the faculty that run the, that run the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, is that it was by far the favorite part, uh, the student's favorite part uh, of the course. And, and I also see very real learning outcomes coming out of it. When I, you know, when I have them write essays, they often will cite some of the knowledge that came out of a game that they can specifically point to and say, yeah, I, I understood why this historical actor did this, why this historical actor uh, came after it. So, uh, so, I, so that is why I chose when I retired from the Army to move into game-based learning and really being an advocate for game-based learning and helping faculty uh, implement it in their classroom who might otherwise be a little shy about doing it. I actually, this, I was just reminded of this, but my history teacher, I believe in freshman year, had us do something similar, uh, and we would all play as uh, powers at the Treaty of Versailles, and you would mm -hmm. be given the things that you were supposed to achieve, uh, and then you would try to negotiate it with your, your group. So the Americans would want to establish the League of Nations, and the French would want to do this amount of reparations, and the British wanted this amount of reparations. And then you would try to do it and see who could hold the most sway in the, the conversation. And I did think it was a very uh, valuable learning to, but, uh, tool, but to sort of touch on what you said earlier, um, there were some people who were taking it too competitively, and I felt like it sort of detracted from its ability to teach, and it became more sort of of the game and less of the history. So what are some things you think that you can do to prevent that, make sure that it's, it's fun and also your learning, and that it's not uh, too much of one or the other. Yeah, I, so this is a great question, and, and I'll just point out, and, and Calvin, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. It's really neat to me that you recall that from freshman year. Is there anything else that you really recall from that history course in freshman year? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. There's not, I don't remember anything as vividly as that. It was a very good tool. Yeah, and, and so and so that just so thanks for playing along with me on that. Yeah, I think that just really speaks to the power of, of game-based learning and as a great example. But to your question, yeah, it is really important to avoid dysfunctional competition. And to me, what that really starts with is game design. Um, you really want to design a learning game in such a way that there has to be some kind of collaboration, there has to be some kind of compromise in order for people to have a chance at, achieve, at achieving uh, their win condition or their goals. Um, if the game just incentivizes cutthroat play and just incentivizes, oh, I, you know, just me, 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 per, uh, pursue my objectives and I don't care about anybody else, then yeah, you're going to get that kind of cutthroat play, you're going to get that, uh, that unfortunate back and forth. 
Um, and, 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 and then you get an outcome like you talked about, where you've got people who are just stuck on one another and, and, are, and are just playing for themselves. So it starts with game design. Uh, and then I think the other critical piece is to have the, the, the teacher really kind of be on a lookout for that kind of zero-sum thinking and intervene on a selective basis with those players and say, you know, hey, you're, you think about where you're going on this. Think about uh, the, the course you're pursuing. Is this, is this really likely to achieve a good outcome for you and help shape students uh, in those directions? And, and what I found is the majority of students will really embrace that, that collaborative ethos to some extent. Um, and then it's, it's actually relatively rare that you've got folks that just want to go in, the, in on it for themselves and are only interested in themselves. Um, but again, it comes to really setting that classroom atmosphere up front, both through the overall atmosphere of your classroom and through the design of the game. What, what do you think the proper place for your games are in the classroom? Like, how, how should you balance them with, I guess, traditional uh, schoolwork? If you, or do you even think we should still have and use the traditional sort of, you know, um, lectures and essays and all of that sort of uh, thing? Yeah, I, I think, so it really depends both on the context of the classroom itself and what the learning outcomes are, right? We shouldn't be doing games just for game's sake. It should always be in service of a particular learning outcome. And so I think it really depends on what the desired outcome of the course is. So just to give you some examples from higher ed, if this is more of a gen ed type credit, right? So many schools have uh, general education or gen ed credits that are really just designed to fulfill a requirement of, hey, we want you to have an experience in historical thinking, or we want you to have an experience in math or social sciences. Then I think a fully game-based uh, class can be great for gen ed. There's a whole series called Reacting to the Past um, that in fact focuses on that and, and they run long, they provide long form games uh, that go over six, seven, eight, even 10 lessons um, that really get into complex historical outcomes and complex historical interplay in any number of historical situations. And so that can be really great. Uh, you know, games like that can be really great for a gen ed where you just want folks to get familiar with, with historical methodology. Now, for things like electives, so for instance, if you're doing uh, a 300 or 400 level elective that's on historiography, which is the study of how we study history, uh, or if you really want to do an in-depth study of a particular historical period, that's where I think it's appropriate for you to balance a game with other methods of instruction, right? That can be lecture, but that can also be uh, some group work and, and group analysis and, and building group constructs. It can be online discussions and online conversations and threaded discussions. So I think really what it boils down to is who's your audience and what's your desired learning outcome. And that can give you a sense of where the balance needs to be struck with games and other forms of learning. One thing that I wanted to just, this is going to be my last question, then I want to go into each game in a little bit more detail. But do you think that games in education can serve in some ways as an equalizer for students who might not have had the same access to books or even literacy, uh, and that it could help them to learn things when the traditional education system has been lacking or has failed them in some way? Uh, so the short answer is yes, absolutely. And I think that is actually one of the strengths of games is that uh, a well-designed game gives students multiple points of entry uh, who may have different skill sets or different strengths. 
So let's say that you have a student who is not a very confident public speaker, but is a great writer, okay? Well, a role-playing game can have a great point of entry for them in that maybe they're writing broadsides or missives or newspapers that are injected into the game as part of the flow of it. On the flip side, you may have somebody who is not a particularly good writer, but is a very persuasive public speaker. Well, again, a game can be a great mechanism to bring them in. Um, one of the things that I really love about games is that they can incorporate such a broad range of learning styles. And, uh, and, and I know that there, there is a lot of debate about the propriety of the term learning styles and whether or not they actually exist. Um, when I talk about learning styles, what I talk about is you know, specific ways of learning and specific areas that people may be stronger in versus weaker in. It doesn't mean that we only teach to someone's learning style or that someone can only learn in that learning style, but I do think that recognizing that some students are stronger in different learning styles just helps us appreciate our students more as individuals uh, and helps us help them learn more as individuals. And I think game-based learning is ideally suited for that. Can I ask just real quick, which one of your games was the first one? I couldn't figure that out on the, the website. Yeah, um, so I think the, I, thinking about it, I think the very first one that I did uh, that, that I've really kind of published and put out there is called Curious Regio, um, the Reformation Microgame. Uh, and the term Curious Regio comes from uh, the Latin phrase uh, Curious Regio Aeus Religio, which means uh, to him who rules... Uh, his religion. And, and this, this basically comes from what ended up being the law of the land uh, after the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation uh, in the Holy Roman Empire was that the local princes could decide um, what religion their particular area was going to follow. And it's not just a question of Catholic versus Protestant because there were all of these offshoots of Protestantism. There's what would eventually become known as Lutheranism, uh, there's Anabaptism, there's Zwinglism, which would later become known as Calvinism, uh, and all of these had subtly different takes, not only on religious practice, but on how religion should be nested or and interact with public life. So what Curious Regio does is it has students role play different roles that would have been the norm uh, within a typical German principality, uh, and they have to convince another student who is role playing the prince. Um, that their particular religion is the one that, that he should adapt. For certain, and those are for students that are role-playing religious roles. There are other students that are role-playing primarily secular roles. And so they are there to give voice to their secular interests and talk about whether they have a particular preference for uh, one religion or not. This is a micro game. It's designed to be played in basically 40 minutes so that you have time to play the game itself uh, and then to, uh, to discuss it further. Um, some colleagues of mine in the reacting movement have written a longer form version of this uh, called Augsburg 1536, um, which is a similar game, but it plays out over multiple days and lets folks do a much deeper dive into it. So folks can kind of go either route depending on what really catches their interest. What do you think are some advancements that you made from that game uh, moving into uh, Mongol Matrix, into the uh, uh, Russian court game, um, and then eventually into uh, your proudest work, the Cuban Missile Crisis game, Eyeball to Eyeball? 
Yeah. So, um, so the the game that came next was uh, was was the the Russian Imperial game after Catherine, um, and I used really what on to be honest, what Cuius Reggio did for me was serve as kind of a proof of concept, right? So, you know, this was the first kind of full fledged micro game that I had written that had actual like real roles and real victory conditions, and and what it did for me was just serve that hey, this, this works. People like it. People enjoy it. And I had written it specifically for the Academy's Western uh, World History uh, course, which later became a Western Civ course. And so when we, when we moved away from that World History course to a regional history, I was looking for things that I could adapt for this new Russian History survey course. And I realized that the dynamics of the Imperial Court, after Catherine, as the, as the game is called, had some really similar and interesting dynamics to Cuius Regio. So I was able to take kind of the broad game mechanic of Cuius Regio, which is convince the sovereign of your position, and adapt them to some of the specific concerns of the Russian Imperial Court. And these were things like, do we open up more to the West? Do we have representative... Uh, democracies. What do we do in terms of our economic system? Who should we be allying with? Uh, you know, all of these things. All of these were things that Catherine the Great had taken initial steps on, uh, and then her son Paul, when he succeeded her, had to um, ha had to actually wrestle with. The other thing, frankly, that after Catherine got me a little comfortable with was the I was a certain level of ahistoricism in games. And what we mean by ahistoricism is things that didn't actually happen, but could potentially have plausibly happened. And so I have a couple characters, uh, you know, for instance, the, um, uh, the, the character of Count Potemkin, who is one of Catherine's lovers, um, is in the game. Well, the real Potemkin has actually died before Paul ever comes to the throne. But I needed a character that could be an advocate for uh, the Catherine reforms. And so I said, well, okay, yes, Potemkin was not actually there, um, but I put this character in there and I put a very clear explanation in the role sheet of, hey, just so you understand, this character was not actually there, but here's, here's the, the role that, that he's playing. And I found that students responded really well to that um, and did not necessarily get confused, again, because to me, when we're teaching about history, we're generally teaching and talking about broad historical trends um, and, and about broad forces at work. So it's less important that you can say, with a couple of exceptions, oh, hey, this person was here at this time. It's more important that people understand about kind of the broad forces. And so that really was the, the linkage between Cuius Regio and After Catherine. What kind of materials are required for these games? Uh, so ideally, so for, so for those two, what really works best is using primary sources to the greatest extent possible. Now, what we mean by primary sources is documents that were actually written uh, by people in the period, right? So we're talking about letters, we're talking about newspaper articles, we're talking about government documents. Um, but to me, ideally, you want to use as many primary sources as possible so that folks can, you know, characters can get into those primary sources um, and use them as evidence just as people of the era would have used them, right? It's not really useful to give people uh, secondary sources, you know, studies that, that folks have written later on 
Um, that's not really useful for folks who are role playing because it doesn't have the same voice. It doesn't have uh, the same perspective. So QS Regio, I'm, I'm able to use almost exclusively uh, primary sources uh, because after Catherine is written specifically to take advantage of the course text that we use for that class, it uses more of a mix of primary and secondary sources. And one last thing that I wanted to get your opinion on, and then I'll let Matt ask some questions, is that uh, there are a lot of uh, historical turn-based strategy games. Um, I know that my friends and my brother play. So do you have any thoughts on games like Europa Universalis and Hearts of Iron and the Total War franchise? And uh, where do you think that they uh, have strengths or shortcomings as historical games? And also, would you ever get into historical video games or are you going to stick to tabletop games? Yeah, so uh, so great questions all. Um, so let me start with, with the first one. I think all of those games, I will confess up front that I'm, I'm broadly familiar with their parameters. Um, I haven't played any, any of the actual games. Uh, I think one great thing about, uh, about tabletop game learning is that because you've got a concrete set of rules and, and you've got an easy opportunity to visualize the board, tabletop games can be really great for one classroom session where you're trying to get a particular point across. So a colleague of mine uses a, uh, a, a commercial tabletop game on World War I, and I'm, I'm blanking on the specific one right now. But he uses it specifically to illustrate to cadets when he's teaching about World War One about some of the challenges in logistics and that, hey, just because you've got these static uh, front lines of trench lines doesn't mean that it's just really easy to throw uh, logistics and throw supplies at a given point that it's actually very, very difficult to move things. So I think uh, tabletop games are, are absolutely great resources uh, for, for classroom instruction, as long as the rules are easy enough to understand that, you can be, that they can be picked up in a classroom period. The single, by far, the single biggest barrier uh, to adopting game-based learning in the classroom is the fact that students have to learn a new rule set, right? So think about, think about a typical classroom. You have pretty much the same rule sets in every class you've ever been to, right? You sit at a desk. You raise a hand when you want to be heard. You, uh, you know, turn in homework at a specific time or in a specific mechanism. Those are all rules that you've learned in that environment uh, over the years, and they stay reasonably constant classroom to classroom. Now with game-based learning, now you're introducing entirely new rule sets, what do you mean I can get up and argue with a classmate right now? I was never able to do that before. What do you mean that I can actually you know, lie to a classmate and deceive them about going down a particular path? I didn't think I could do that in class. Um, so those are just some examples. And then when we talk about tabletop games, right? how, does this, how do I roll these die? How does that work? How do the cards work? Um, so so these, are, these are barriers to learning, and I think it's one of the biggest challenges in tabletop games is learning the game mechanics that are unique to the tabletop game. And so the same thing then goes for digital uh, games for learning. I, I, think I think there are great digital games uh, out there that are great for learning. The, the two biggest barriers, frankly, that you run into there uh, are, uh, are cost and platform accessibility, right? We can't assume that everybody has a smartphone. We can't assume that everybody has a laptop. You know, there are very real digital divides in our society. And, and we saw that 
during the pandemic, right? When, when folks had to be given laptops for remote learning, when uh, school districts had to repurpose school buses as mobile Wi-Fi outlets in order so that communities that didn't have broadband service uh, could get could get on the internet and could participate in remote learning. So I think that's by far the biggest challenge for classroom-based digital games uh, is the very real digital divide and making sure that everybody has the opportunity uh, to participate equally. Um, so I think something that I'm interested about um, is your time at West Point and how like um, how these games are perceived there. Like I know you brushed on, you talked about one of your colleagues um, doing something similar with tabletop games and whatnot. Um, and I'm just sort of, how do the cadets perceive this? How does the broader staff perceive all this? Um, and is, do you think, are you noticing any trends? Like, do you think more people are starting to use like uh, games and more interactive based learning at the academy or um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so I would generally characterize the, the reception at the academy uh, as, as warm. You know, the, the U.S. military has a long history with simulations. Some of the first digital simulations that were ever written uh, were either on DOD platforms or written for DOD purposes. Uh, the, uh, the, the modern U.S. Army uh, has a heavy relationship with what we call live simulation, which is in our combat training centers, the training scenarios that are set up out there specifically to challenge and stress out leaders. And so a lot of times just by reframing uh, a game as a simulation, I can overcome any kind of skepticism that might exist uh, on the part of, of, of faculty. Um, there are some very real concerns, right? One of the concerns that constantly comes up is, hey, do these games have the appropriate level of classroom rigor? Uh, you know, are they appropriately challenging students or is it just an opportunity to blow off steam and have fun? And, and that, is a, that is a very valid and, and very real concern. That's one of the reasons why I emphasize the use of primary sources so much, because I think that is a great way of establishing rigor, right? Because you're forcing people to really get into the sources and really dig in and really understand it. Um, and, and so I've seen, I, I would say that I've seen a growing acceptance uh, over the last 10 years of games in the curriculum at West Point. Um, the reacting to the past methodology that I mentioned before uh, is now a core piece of one of the freshman history courses, the, the Western History Survey course. Uh, they run, they play the French Revolution uh, reacting game, which is a simulation uh, of the French Revolution and the accompanying Great Terror, uh, and gets people thinking about you know these aspects of early modernity and how did it take place and what were the what were the ideals that that were in contention there. And I definitely see it in other departments as well. I, I've had colleagues uh, in social sciences, in systems engineering, uh, and in mathematical sciences, just to name a few, uh, who I know for a fact use games and simulations in their learning as well. Um, cadets, cadets love it. Um, I, by and large, uh, it, is a, uh, it, it is a warm reception. There are, of course, always cadets. Uh, there will always be individuals that don't like it, right? That prefer lecture, that prefer, hey, I, you know, I like the old stuff because I'm good at the old stuff. I don't like this whole game-based thing. I don't understand it. And, and that's always going to be the case with any teaching methodology that you use. And so really what you have to do in that case is make sure that things are still accessible for that cadet, make sure that they still feel comfortable participating and contributing and learning, uh, and, and hope that they still get something out of it, even if they are potentially a skeptic.
Well, and I think something great about um, military academies is that they always have smaller class sizes. So you can, you know, if somebody is falling behind because they don't take well to the games, you can sort of give them more individual support. Um, but how do you think something like this would play out at like a larger um, or a university where they have larger class sizes, you know, and there are maybe a hundred kids in one classroom? Do you think it would still work the same way or do you think it would, um, would, would, it, would you have to make modifications? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we're talking about large lecture classes, it becomes much, much harder to do. Um, most of the role-playing games, uh, that, uh, especially the historical role-playing games, most of the ones that I'm familiar with, they top out at about 30 or 35 roles. Um, but when you, what, what a lot of, especially uh, humanities and social sciences lecture courses in many universities do, is, yeah, they'll have these big lectures but then they'll also have smaller breakout groups that are really designed as discussion sections. And it's in those smaller breakouts that I think that games can really be a powerful tool for learning among other tools, right? So yeah, you can have, so just uh, to you know, shamelessly trumpet one of my own games, um, you can have a lecture talking about the early Cold War, you know, the, the first 20 years of the Cold War, and then have breakouts where they're actually playing the Cuban Missile Crisis game and getting a better understanding of, hey, here's some of the dynamics um, that played out. So I think even with the large lecture courses, if there's a, those opportunities for, for small group breakouts, that games can really still be a powerful part of that. We've talked a lot about history and social sciences. Uh, what do you think is the role of games, if anything, in uh, fields like science or math or English? Uh, can you still use games as well in those areas? And do you know of any uh, that exist that you think are good examples? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so certainly you can use games uh, to just understand some of the, 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 the basics, right? So you can use games to model uh, you can use games to model some physical principles, right? Many of the game engines, like the Unreal Game Engine, allow you to tweak some of the physics principles in that game. So you can see how things like momentum work. You can see how things um, like uh, uh, how things like ricochets work, for instance. Um, and and it does, you don't necessarily have to be slaves to that cartoon physics. The other area where I think games can be really powerful in STEM is understanding how some of these scientific principles get applied to daily life. Right? We have seen over the last year this, this clash um, between uh, scientific findings and political perspectives. And so it's never just as easy as saying, well, the science says X, because that science still has to be translated into the human sphere, into the human domain. And that's an area where I think games can really showcase things very well. So colleagues of mine in Reacting, for instance, have written games about the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference of 2009, where, look, the science was very clear uh, in 2009 about what needed to happen to combat climate change, and yet there were very real concerns brought in by the participants that ultimately ended up producing what many would perceive as a suboptimal outcome. So playing a game like that can help you understand how the very real and important elements of the human condition uh, intermix with uh, these principles of STEM to actually act out in the world uh, that we live in. And for English, uh, certainly there are great opportunities just to understand different aspects of literature. Another one of my colleagues 
uh, in the reacting movement has written a, a game called Stages of Power, uh, Shakespeare and Marlowe, which talks about those two competing theater companies in Elizabeth, Elizabethan e England, excuse me, um, and how they were competing for eyeballs and how they were uh, competing for royal acclaim. So I think, you know, one of the things that I really pride myself in my company and one of the things that I'm really trying to do is help people see the possibilities for games and uh, game-based learning and not just think, oh, well, I teach X. There's no way that, that uh, a game could be used for that. Well, reach out to me. Tell me what your desired learning outcome is and let me do the digging. Let me do the searching to find a game that works well for you. And that sort of brings me into uh, my final question about the games, uh, is that what are some things that you think that students, uh, be they at high school or at a university, could do to maybe bring games more into the awareness and get their teachers to be aware of and involved in educational games? So one thing I would say is, you know, be open to the idea of games that are in uh, your own life and their applicability uh, in the classroom, right? So you mentioned uh, Hearts of Iron, you mentioned Total War. Uh, you know, be willing to say to, to the teacher, hey, I think this could be a really cool class session coming up. Could I, you know, run this session for the other folks in, in my class, right? So pitch the idea uh, to, your to your faculty members, to your teachers, and say, hey, is this a possibility? You might be surprised about how receptive they actually are. From a, a, a teaching perspective, I'll tell you, anytime that you've got students who want to demonstrate agency in the classroom, right, who want to take charge of their learning in the classroom and, and really help shape it, that's a great thing for me as a faculty member to see that because that shows me that you care. Um, that shows me that you're interested. So I think just showing that level of engagement and showing what games can do for you, I think can be really, really powerful uh, in terms of helping, helping teachers and helping others see the potential for game-based learning. The last episode that Matt and I did, we actually talked about uh, the musical Hamilton, and mm -hmm. then we sort of had a debate about some American revolutionary history. And I wanted to know uh, what your opinion was as a history teacher about Hamilton and really about um, depictions of history. And sometimes is it okay if they're not 100% accurate, if they get people engaged, but also what are some of the risks of doing that? Yeah, so I mean, so I come at this from kind of two perspectives. One is as, as a historian, the other is as a gigantic theater nerd. I love uh, Broadway. I love the theater. Um, my wife and I make a point. We live here in New York, uh, and before the pandemic hit, we went to see a Broadway show uh, about once a month. Um, and so I am a huge, huge theater fan. Um, and yeah, I recognize the challenge that you say, which is what happens when uh, historical events are depicted in popular culture and perception gets skewed as a result. Because let's be very clear, the purpose of popular culture is not to preserve historical memory. It's to tell a good story and by extension to entertain. Uh, another great example, when I was teaching Western Civ in 2006 and the movie 300 came out. Okay, well, 300 is full of anachronisms, is full of historical inaccuracies. Um, but what popular culture can do, both in the case of, uh, of 300 and in the case of Hamilton, is it can spark an interest, right? It can spark an opening. And that's where I think historians can come in and say, well, let's talk about 
what they got right and what they got wrong and have that conversation with your students and say, all right, and, and not just be the party pooper, right? Of, oh, this is terrible because they got X, Y, and Z wrong. Well, let's talk about what they got right, what they got wrong, and let's talk most critically about why did they get it wrong, right? A lot of times it's not because they were stupid or they were ignorant. Uh, you know, many times the authors are very aware of the history of this, um, they just, but they need to shape it in a way that tells a good story. And understanding and, and talking, having conversations about why, um, why authors, why popular culture creators made the decisions they did to omit things um, can really be illuminating about our culture, right? And what we prize and what we value and what we don't value. Um, the other thing that I will say about this is, yeah, there can be lots of critiques about popular culture about what they leave out. Well, the reality is anybody who builds a narrative leaves something out, right? When historians write a history of a particular time period, of an era, of a place, of a person, they have to make conscious decisions to leave things out, okay? Because otherwise you have a bad narrative. You have something that is incomprehensible and inaccessible to people. The best historians make a point of saying, hey, I have left out the following things and here's why and focus on the things that they left in. So we shouldn't, as historians, we shouldn't feel superior to pop culture folks just because, oh, well, they leave things out and we don't. Well, historians leave things out too. So we ought to all be transparent, historians and pop culture creators alike, um, about the things that the decisions we've made about things to include and things to leave out and why we've done both. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we've been hearing from um, Ray Kimball, who makes educational games and is a U.S. Army veteran and West Point, former West Point professor. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for all the insight about uh, gaming and about history. Guys, thanks very much, and I'll just say if there's uh, faculty out there who are interested in working with me more on games, uh, just check out my website, 42ed.games. That's 42ed.games, and I would love to talk with you and love to work with you.